Hi, Andy. Hi, Victoria. Today, we have a very special guest, Diana Weil. My daughter. Absolutely. Who happens to be an integrative health coach and a nutritionist and a yoga teacher. And we're going to focus with her on how to eat healthily, especially around the upcoming holidays. I look forward. I think she's a very wise person. I wonder where she got that from. I can't imagine. (laughs) (laughs) Diana Weil is a certified nutrition specialist with a master's in nutrition and integrative health. She works with clients to optimize their well-being with an emphasis on creating a healthy relationship with food. She's also a certified health coach and a yoga instructor. Welcome, Diana. And she's my daughter. I was hoping you would say that. Yes, and the daughter of Dr. Weil. So one of the things I was really hoping to talk with both of you today from your perspectives, Dr. Weil, a leading physician in integrative medicine, Diana, a health coach, I'm sure people ask you all the time about things they read on the internet. And the internet can be an amazing resource. People find such useful information. And at the same time, there's a lot of misinformation, incorrect and confusing stuff out there. So how do you help people discern? Yeah, I think, I mean, I think that one of the things I admire most about your word is that just that detection of maybe this isn't such good information and what's not going to work for people. And I think that that's one of the things that's made you so popular. It really concerns me, to be honest. I think that there's a lot of fear mongering on the internet. I see people not choosing to eat certain things or do certain things. And maybe that they found a recommendation that is for a very specific population that's been spread out as information all of a sudden for the general population. What's an example of one of the things you've seen or some of the things you've seen that make people fearful about eating? So one thing I think I've seen a ton of people being terrified to eat vegetables and legumes because of lectins and oxalates. And people seem genuinely terrified to eat vegetables at this point. Yeah, it's a real trend. And it's also people advising people to eat nothing but meat and also arguing that the growing of vegetables is worse for the environment than the raising of animals for food. I think this stuff is crazy. And by the way, let me just say something about lectins and oxalates. These are considered anti-nutrients and they're produced by plants as defensive compounds. They're proteins and they can interfere with the absorption and digestion of proteins. But I think they're only of concern to certain people or if people eat huge amounts of sources of these, like raw legumes, which I have always advised people not to eat, or very large amounts of raw spinach or chard, which are rich oxalates. Oxalates are really only a concern to people who form oxalate kidney stones. And lectins, I think, are just not a concern unless people are eating very large quantities of these sources. So that's a really potent example of misinformation. And of course, uh, from our perspective, vegetables are probably your absolute healthiest choice of a food. I was just going to say the same thing. I mean, I think that I one thing that I see a lot of is people lacking fiber in their diet. Mm -hmm. And it really concerns me that all of a sudden people are going more towards just eating meat. I mean, is there ever a situation where either of you would recommend a carnivore diet? Well, I do think that there is evidence that people who have type 2 diabetes 
uh, a new diagnosis or they have impending diabetes, pre-diabetes metabolic syndrome, there are studies that show that when they follow a low carbohydrate diet, which doesn't mean no vegetables, of course, but it does mean a thoughtful consideration of, well, which are the starchy vegetables like potatoes that you're going to avoid and which are the really fiber rich that are going to feed the microbiome that you're going to continue to eat. Anyway, in the studies where people eat that low carbohydrate diet, they often are able to reverse their type 2 diabetes. There are some very rare kinds of cancer as well, where the cancer seems to be stimulated by glucose and eating foods that essentially don't particularly produce glucose, so more on the animal protein side, seems to be protective. But those are really particular situations where you're attempting to treat something. I wouldn't call that a health-promoting, preventive health, healthy diet for the whole population. What about weight loss, Diana? Yeah, I'm sure you've dealt with clients where that's their main concern. That's definitely one of the population that I work with most. And when working with weight loss, I mean, as a vegetarian, I don't think that everyone needs to be a vegetarian. I think that meat can have absolutely have a place in people's diet, especially high quality meat. I'm not saying that everyone needs to be vegan. For weight loss, I really like to focus on fiber and nutrient-rich foods so that when we're limiting calories or being mindful of calories, my clients are still getting the foods and the nutrients that they need without feeling starving. I mean, you can have 1,500 calories from donuts or you can have 1,500 calories from whole grains, fruits, vegetables, maybe some meat. And I think you're going to feel very different on those. And to your point, Victoria, what you said about how these diets are meant for a very specific population, I think that that's what I've been seeing is that very specific diets and recommendations for a small group of people is now being recommended to millions on Instagram. I mean, that's really where I'm seeing this, this information spread. And so I think one of the things... I feel very passionate about is finding what works best for you and being very careful about the sources that you're getting that information from. Yeah. And you and I have spent a lot of time over the past years talking about the microbiome. And one of Diana's pieces of advice, which is a fiber-rich diet, that fiber is nutrition for the microorganisms that make up your microbiome. So to have a healthy gut, which we're probably at some moment is going to say is what's critical to be healthy requires that you consume fiber and really vegetables and fruits are the primary source of fiber in our diet. Totally agree. And Diana, you've just been starting to work with True Food Kitchen restaurants as a nutritional consultant. Tell us a little about your what your work there is going to be. I'm beyond excited. It's a total passion project dream position. One of the things that I love about True Food is that they really steer away from these diet trends and they have a good balance of overall nutritious food that also tastes good, which is another big passion of mine is teaching people that you can eat really healthy and it doesn't need to taste bad. Food should be good. You should enjoy the food that you're eating. For example, how many times have we heard that someone hates kale and then they eat the kale salad and they love it? It's because it's a different way of preparing kale. Of course, you're going to hate vegetables if you've only ever had broccoli that's been steamed for 20 minutes. That sounds awful to me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And I do think that that's something that I've heard from both of you repeatedly over time, which is that healthy food can be delicious. And yet 
not everybody knows how to do that. And I'm sure that when you work with your clients, that is one of the things that you're helping them learn. So tell us a little bit about how you do work with clients besides sending them to a restaurant for every meal. (laughs) (laughs) One of my biggest thing when working with someone is really meeting them where they're at. And a lot of times I see people, and I'm sure people listening to this can really resonate, that we're busy and you don't have time to be making every meal at home. And so I think it's really key that we are giving people realistic advice. And so when I work with people, it's about meeting them where they are, figuring out, you know, if you are unable to cook during the week, how can we still get you nutritious foods that taste good, that are easy and quick? And maybe that means buying frozen vegetables. Maybe that means getting takeout, but ordering the healthier options. I also really focus on, again, relationships with food and a healthy relationship with food could mean having pasta sitting down with your family. You know, my dad and I eat pasta together and it's okay. And one of the things that I find that's really healthy about that is that we sit at the table, we have a conversation, we're bonding, we're eating this really delicious meal. And I think that that's a large part of health and working with people as well is finding out, you know, what fits in your lifestyle? What are the small choices that you can make every day that make you feel better? And how does that fit into your lifestyle? It makes me really sad when If someone is doing a very extreme diet and maybe for the wrong reasons and they can't have dinner with their family or they can't go out to eat and it gives them anxiety, I really question, is this the healthiest move for you? Is this what you should be doing? How do you feel about that, Victoria? I mean, do you see people when they can't go out to eat or they can't bond with their family because they're on a specific diet? Well, a few reactions. One is I just had my grandchildren visit and my granddaughter, who's three and a very good eater, asks me to make her pasta with everything. (laughs) So I make her pasta with broccoli and pine nuts and with uh, artichoke hearts. And I throw in a little bit of arugula and a little bit of feta cheese. And she just eats the whole thing. and, And it's delicious to her. And she loves it. My grandson, who's five, he's like, i don't want everything. And so he's busy picking out the broccoli and setting it aside and, and, and not eating that. And I do think a family meal, to answer your question, is important. It is important for us to work on something that we can all eat and enjoy together, as opposed to everybody eating something particular and different. And one last thing I'll say is, you know, sometimes when I go out to eat with people, I have them look at me. I'm going, I'm not the food police, you know, <laughs> you can enjoy your meal. We have always, as humans, enjoyed feasts and times of feasting and feast foods. And we probably don't want to eat that way every single day because it's too rich. It's too abundant, for example. But it doesn't mean that we should never have that kind of pleasurable experience. You know, one of the reasons that I think True Food Kitchen has been successful is that it provides something for everyone. So mixed parties can go in there, vegetarians, meat eaters, people who are avoiding gluten, and the restaurant can accommodate them and everyone can sit together at the table and have things they enjoy. Yes. One of the huge pleasures of restaurant eating is that it it does meet everybody's needs. But what I was just saying about feast foods makes me want to ask the two of you a question, which is the holidays and eating well for the holidays. Because Diana, you talked about people being anxious about their food and their diets. And actually, holidays can often be a really tricky time for people who are wrestling with food. Absolutely. And I was, you know, it made me think too, that I, with nutrition and health in general, I see a lot of people living kind of in the black and white. And what I've come to over the years is really, it's this gray area. You know, it doesn't have to be 
that if you if you have a big feast, that that's the way that you eat for the rest of your life. It can be, okay, maybe you overate for that one meal. And then the next morning, you just kind of get back into normal habits. And especially around the holidays, I think giving yourself the grace and permission to say, you know, for Thanksgiving, maybe I eat a little bit past what I would normally eat. And that's okay. One of the big things that I always recommend is not starving yourself for those big holiday meals. I think that that leads to making choices that you wouldn't normally do. I think it leads to eating past the point of fullness. So I recommend having a healthy, nutritious breakfast, having lunch, eating sort of the way that you normally would, getting some movement in if you can. And that can look like going on a walk with your grandma. It might look like going on a walk with your sister. It doesn't have to be that you are running a marathon Thanksgiving morning. I know, Victoria, that you and so with my dad, you guys are go on walks every day. I mean, I think you guys are both very strict about your walks and you love it. So again, with this moving out of that black and white and more into the gray area, can you fit a 15 minute walk in? Maybe that's after Thanksgiving dinner, I think is so helpful with digestion. So really it's sticking with your habits throughout the day and then enjoying a meal with your family and then getting back into the habits, which for me is one of the big the big reasons why how you should be eating and living on a day-to-day basis is something that you can do when you're on vacation during the holidays, when you're stressed out and not going to these extremes so that you can enjoy a holiday meal. And then the next morning you get back to your normal breakfast, your normal exercise routine. Yes. Really great advice. Andy, what have you recommended to people about holiday eating? Well, you know, I like to cook healthy things for the holidays. Mm -hmm. So I have special foods often, but I still adhere to the principles of healthy nutrition. One challenge though, Diana, that you gloss over is that there (laughs) often are very tempting leftovers from that feast. So the next day, it may not be so easy to get back to your normal eating habits. You know, you might want to finish up the pumpkin pie or the... Or the cake the or the stuffing, yeah. So I think you have to allow yourself that as well. <laughs> and share, right? We share leftovers. You know, like I don't go to a party and then take home all of my pie. I try to share the leftovers. True. <laughs> yes, sharing leftovers is a great and very communal kind of behavior as well. I have a question for both of you. What do you think about how to stay mindful with your body when you are at a larger gathering or eating one of those holiday meals? I mean, do you have any recommendations for people being able to stay in tune with their hunger fullness, kind of how they're feeling? Well, one of the suggestions you made, I think is really critically important, which is that you You never come to the meal starving. And I think you pointed to Thanksgiving. A lot of times Thanksgiving dinner is served at a funny time. It's like mid-afternoon. So if you miss your lunch, you're starving. (laughs) If you've eaten a full lunch, you may not be hungry at all. And so thinking about the timing of that meal, I think is important. I actually think the other thing that helps us be more mindful is many people have rituals on Thanksgiving, which slow down the meal. And for example, we speak about something that we're grateful for, or the meal is served slowly. It's served course by course. And I think that those rituals actually are very helpful because it can take some time for our body to signal fullness. And so if we're eating a meal more slowly over a a feast with friends and family, then most likely we're going to have the opportunity to hear those body signals a little better. 
Yeah, I think Christmas has some special challenges because sweet treats are very common at Christmas time. You know, people bake cookies and cakes and pies, and they're around often for 10 days around the holiday time. And you go out to people's houses and you're serving them as well. So I think that may take some special concentration and discipline to how much you allow yourself of that. I absolutely agree. I also think the same thing with alcohol. You know, you go to these parties, maybe you're uncomfortable, maybe you're a little nervous. We grab a glass of wine, a cocktail. And, you know, if you're going to multiple holiday parties, it can be really tough with cookies, with alcohol. So I think being especially mindful of alcohol and the role that alcohol is playing in your parties, in your gatherings, making sure to drink enough water. And and like we both said, Victoria, not showing up to these parties starving, not saving your meals that you can have all the cookies and all the wine that you want. I just don't think that that leads to success. (laughs) Yeah. I actually often talk with my patients about that it is normal for us to fall off the path, you know, that we have a path where we're journeying on, that we have a healthy way in which we eat. And then something happens and the happy occasion is a holiday or a bunch of parties that happen to come in a short period of time. You know, sometimes there are difficult things or you're traveling and you don't have access to the healthy meals that you may be making at home. And the question is now, not whether we fall off the path, because we all do. We're humans and that's okay. The question is, how long does it take you to get back to your healthy lifestyle? And that's where I'd like to encourage people. It's not like, don't beat yourself up. You know, it's okay. That's human. We, we all do that. How quickly can you resume that which has been a healthy lifestyle for you? I think that's great advice. And also looking at what are the... One thing I've been thinking about a lot as well is where do you find fulfillment? And what is bringing you joy outside of food? You know, if Christmas, the only thing that's bringing you joy is food, maybe how can you cultivate joy and happiness and feeling fulfilled outside of the Christmas cookies? Is that spending time with your family in a really meaningful way? Is that taking some time for yourself, which I think can be really challenging during the holidays, but looking at what else do the holidays represent to you besides just the food? And Listen, I love Christmas cookies. I love all of the things and I enjoy them in moderation. And I also think about like, you know, I love Christmas lights and I love walking around and seeing people's Christmas lights. And that brings me a lot of the holiday joy outside of just what am I eating? Uh, Apart from the holidays, what about eating for comfort or to deal with stress? I think that's very common. I do that myself. If I'm stressed and nervous, I want to eat more. I'm sure you run into that with the clients you deal with. What advice do you have? That is probably the most asked question that I get. And I, it is a similar thing of really tuning in what moments lead you to that stress eating or that comfort eating. What is, what do you have in your life to deal with stress, to make yourself feel comforted outside of food? And also acknowledging that I think it's normal to reach for food when we're feeling stressed or sad or angry, that that's okay. It doesn't mean that you've failed, but looking at what else, what support systems do you have in place for those moments? The other thing I think as well is that I see a lot of times people will not eat because they want to lose weight and then then they reach for the comfort foods or the stress foods. So again, it's kind of a similar advice to the holidays of how can you set yourself up for success earlier in the day with highly nutritious foods and then maybe allowing yourself to have a cookie mindfully sitting down, really enjoying it rather than 
I'm not going to eat the cookies. I'm going to put them away in a pantry and grabbing 20 in an hour because rather than just grabbing the one cookie and eating it and enjoying it. What do you think, dad, when you find yourself, if you haven't had a bad day, I mean, I think that you allow yourself to eat foods that you love, but you do so in a really mindful way, which is something I've always admired about you. And I try to eat them in moderate portions, you know, to let myself have the pleasure of, of, of a food that's maybe off my, you know, particular eating plan, but not eat a huge quantity of it. And you buy high quality foods. I mean, if you're going to have something like a sweet or something, you always, always look at the ingredients in that food and make sure that it's something, okay, maybe that this isn't a kale salad, but it's not... I do want to say as a human being, I also eat for comfort at times. I think that that is a normal, you know, we eat for all kinds of reasons and not just because it is a fuel that makes our body function. And at the same time, when I'm feeling really stressed, if I could notice I'm really stressed, I have so many other ways that I can also manage my stress, whether it's going out for a brisk walk or doing my four, seven, eight breath or sitting with a cup of tea. And so it's not about never reaching for that cookie, but it's also, wow, you know, I, I need to manage my stress. And what are the various ways that I know that I can do that? I even think it's helpful to write down a list. And if you find that you are really in that cycle, put that list somewhere visible so that when you are stuck in a moment where you feel really stressed out, you can just, you don't have to think about it. You can look at your list and be like, you know, a cup of tea sounds really good. Calling this person sounds really nice. I love this book. You don't have to think about it in the moment. You have a list already written out. You can pick that list. Or another fun idea is having a jar and writing them all down and you can pick out one of those ideas and whatever the idea is you do for yourself. I think that that's a really fun, creative way to do it as well. What about traveling? You and I both like to travel. We've traveled together. And that, I think, presents some special challenges for eating in a healthy way and keeping up, in general, your healthy habits. This one is tough. I mean, this one this one's really tough for me, too. I really struggle traveling. I think one of the biggest things is drinking water, staying hydrated. And this is something that I personally struggle with, giving yourself permission to go to the bathroom on the plane. I don't know if you guys feel this way, but I have anxiety. You know, if I'm in a window seat and I someone's in the aisle and I have to ask them to get up for me, it brings me anxiety. So I've, as I've gotten older, I've realized that like, it's okay to say, hey, I need you to get up so that I can go to the bathroom. I think people don't drink water on planes because they don't want to go to the bathroom. I think bringing snacks, I know you are excellent at bringing snacks when you travel so that you don't have to rely on airport food or what's on the plane. Victoria, I, I believe, I think I've gotten this advice from you as well, that standing up on the plane and just walking the aisles. Is that correct? Am I saying that right? Well, it's certainly on a long flight, it's really a good idea for your health to get up and move. And sitting too long has some consequences. And on an airplane in particular, sometimes people can develop a blood clot. So you really do want to get up and move if you can. And asking someone to get up, of course, is giving them a chance to move a little bit. So, so you can think of it, reframe it, Diana, that you're doing a favor to your seatmate <laughs> <laughs> when you ask them to that. get up. <laughs> but I, I think the other thing I have found over the years is that there's the travel day itself and bringing snacks help. But I now try to stay places that have a kitchen so that I'm not dependent on eating three meals out. It's lovely to eat out at a restaurant. It's very fun. I usually try to have dinner out, but this way I could make my own breakfast and lunch and have much more control over my diet. 
So one of the two traveling rules that I've heard as being sacred are first, never pass up a chance to go to the bathroom and never pass up a chance to eat. So I don't know about the, you know, <laughs> the second one. I think you have to be a little careful there. Dad, what are your favorite, what snacks, what snacks do you bring when you travel? Because really, I mean, I see you as the travel expert. You do it so often. Well, I always try to bring some dark chocolate that I like. I often bring nuts. My favorite are raw cashews, sometimes cheese. I think those are the main ones. But airport, the choices in airports are so dismal. And they're so expensive. They are getting a little better happily. I bring nuts as well because nuts don't go bad and they don't get smushed in your luggage, which is one of the factors that I'm thinking about when I'm putting together a little treat, you know, set of treats. I'll often travel with an apple. Same thing. It's hard. It usually can handle the travel. Broccoli. If I cut up some broccoli, I know not everybody likes raw broccoli, but I kind of do and and the crunch of it and just having a vegetable when I travel that's accessible. So I'll often bring that as well. Victoria nuts do go bad, especially yes. <laughs> if they've been been roasted. Yes. Uh, you know, they can go rancid fairly easily. So you should always smell nuts before you eat them. And if you get any hint of uh, rancidity odor, don't don't eat them. And tell our listeners what rancid smells like. Yes, rancid smells like oil paint, and you should familiarize yourself with that odor. You know, linseed oil, which is the base of oil paint, is a is from flaxseed, and this is a very unsaturated oil, and unsaturated oils react quickly with oxygen on exposure to light and heat. And so, and linseed is called a drying oil because in the oxidation process, it turns from liquid to solid, and that's why it's used as a base for oil paint. But that smell is the smell of rancidity. And I just had that happen, Andy. I had a container of whole flax seeds, which, you know, in in theory are better protected because they're not ground and they're in that tough, they have that very tough, impenetrable almost outer shell. And I opened it up and I was going, oh my God, it smelled just like paint. paint And so I tossed the whole thing. Good for you. I've also been served brownies that with walnuts in them that are Mm -hmm. rancid. And that's a little hard because it's disguised by the the chocolate smell, but you want to sniff everything. And it's not just nuts, anything that has an oil content. Mm-hmm. So whole wheat flour, because of the the oil and the wheat germ, can go rancid, whereas white flour can't. So these things should be sniffed before you and, eat them. And even your oil in your cabinet, if it's been Absolutely. sitting in your cabinet for a while, give it a smell. Yep. I think that that's so, as soon as I learned what that smell taste was, I it's all over the place now. And I don't think I ever recognized that before. And now Now I do. And it's really, it's quite intense once I think you learn it. Well, teach other people to do that too. So besides oil, Diana, as you're working with your clients, um, share with us a few of the tips that you give them so that they can share your healthy relationship with food. Yeah, that's a great. um, So I think one thing that I, I work with a lot of people who have spent their entire lives dieting. And so a lot of it is how can we reframe this mindset and kind of get out of that very diet-centered life? One of the big things that I look at too is that weight doesn't necessarily equate health. You can be extremely thin and not be a healthy person and vice versa. So I think one thing is getting out of this that weight is a direct correlation to health. It's It's one aspect, but there are many other factors. So for me, it's reframing a lot of these thoughts with clients of only focusing on weight as a measure of health. And I think that that is, has a huge improvement alone on 
their relationship with food. The other thing that I really recommend, especially I've worked with a lot of women, women who have chronically underfed themselves. So it can be very uncomfortable to really feed yourself the appropriate amount, I think, for some people, especially if they've dieted their entire lives. And so I, I really recommend sitting with your hunger fullness cues and and getting in touch with what that feels like. And maybe, I mean, that takes some some exploration. It could be, oh, that's really interesting. I overate at that dinner. This is what this feels like, rather than guilt and shame getting into that curiosity mindset of what led me to the point where I overate or vice versa. I was starving. I skipped breakfast. I was stressed. And then I had Burger King for lunch rather than, oh my gosh, I'm a terrible person. Just getting into, that's really interesting. I skipped breakfast. That led me to be hangry. And then I saw Burger King and that's why I stopped there. So I think it's a lot about sitting with those cues, understanding that maybe this means you have to eat a little bit more. Maybe this means you're going to gain a little bit of weight at first or your set point for weight is a little bit higher than the number that you picked out when you were 13. And that's the number that you decided that you wanted to stay at, you know? So I think it can be really uncomfortable. It can take work. This is not a quick fix. This is something that can be years of reframing these thoughts. I hear you mention what I would almost call a moral judgment, you know, that you're bad because you ate that burger king. <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, I've, I've done this. And even if it's not a Burger King or if it's a brownie, you know, thinking I ate that brownie, really didn't need to eat that brownie. Why did I eat that brownie? And for me at this point in my life, I think that the anxiety or the shame is worse for my health than just really enjoying that brownie. That's, that's kind of the full circle that I've done here that it's okay to have a brownie. I do think, again, we can stick in this gray area. It doesn't have to be all brownies are good for our health. It can just be, I enjoyed a brownie. I really liked it. I'm going to move on with my day and sort of getting rid of this moral code around food. Do you guys agree? I mean, it's tough. It is kind of this, like, how do we be in the gray area? I do agree. And also the evidence overwhelmingly shows that the vast majority of people who lose weight by dieting regain it all. Uh, so that is not a good cycle to be in. So I think we would all agree that a diet in some ways is something you go on and you lose your weight and then you go off. And anything you go off is probably going to lead for you to regain the weight. So what we need is something that we can do as a long-term healthy practice. Do you work with people on time-restricted eating you know, where they perhaps don't eat for a 10 or 12 or 14-hour period? Yes. You know, I think that there are benefits to a 12 hour fast to give your time, you, you know, your body time to, to rest and do the things that it needs to do before eating again. I am very cautious about time restricted fasting with the people that I work with and really asking, are you doing this because you are trying to lose weight and you're starving yourself? Or do you have specific reasons that you're doing this for? And do you feel better? You know, there are people who just don't really like breakfast. They don't wake right. up hungry. <laughs> and so for those people, you know, I think it's okay if you're eating at 12 and maybe you stop eating at seven. I think that that fits into your natural life style. I think that people can come about it as a way of dieting. And those are the people that I am very cautious about. I think that there are some benefits to fasting. It's not something that I recommend for everybody. How do you feel about fasting? So the time-restricted eating, of course, is 
sometimes considered a form of fasting, although, you know, it's not exactly the same as not eating at all for a longer period of time. I agree with you. I think for some people that structure just works and it gives them structure. And then during the period they are eating, whether it's uh, eight, 10, 12 hours, they enjoy their food and they eat what they want to eat. And then they do, as you say, give their microbiome a chance, their immune system a chance, their blood sugar a chance to become healthy again. And so I think there are some clear health benefits. And then for other people, as you say, it's akin to torture. <laughs> I'm starving. I can't eat because I haven't gotten out of my window and uh, this is miserable. So for some, it's, I think, a really good lifestyle that works. And for others, it's not a fit at all. And I guess that's one of the things that I love about integrative medicine is that we individualize. Yes. Which is so, so key. I mean, I am one of those people that it is torture. I feel starving and I feel, you know, like all of a sudden I can't eat. And then mm-hmm. it just makes me want to eat all of the things. You inherited <laughs> that from me, Diana. <laughs> <laughs> it doesn't yeah. work for us. Yeah. For some people, I, it does. And I think yeah. With all of these things, I just really encourage people to realize that this is not a magic ticket. You know, like this is not the one size fits all cure, which I I see a lot of times. Like you said, it might work for you. It might not. I think it has to be an individual approach. Yeah. Well, Diana, are you willing to give us any parting words of wisdom from your expertise as an integrative health coach and a nutritionist? My biggest piece of advice is one, figuring out what you need. And maybe that's working with an integrative doctor, an integrative nutritionist, someone who can re-identify your needs. If you feel like you can do that on your own, that's fantastic. Just, I think, be very cautious about where you're getting your information from, making sure it's good information. And then most importantly, I hope that you enjoy your food you spend time with your family and friends and see health as being much more than just shoveling food into your mouth, you know, really make an experience of it. Food should be enjoyed. Food should taste good. And I think health is much more than just what we're eating. Thank you so much for sharing your wisdom with us on Body of Wonder. Yes. Thank you. Listeners, this is Dr. Victoria Mazes. We would love for you to send us your questions. For Andy, myself, or for our guests, you can call us and leave a voicemail by dialing 520-621-3950. Again, 520-621-3950. Or you can submit a question by going to our website, azcim.org slash podcast. Again, azcim.org slash podcast. When you go to our website, you can see our upcoming guests, and we will try to answer some of your questions on our program. 